And that snail with the silver shell told John 100 stories. Yo, mister, they said in unison. We're the Panacea Brothers. I'm silver and I'm bullet. Got any work cut out for us? We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers. We've been bringing you tall tales and fairy tales, folk tales and personal and family tales since 2013. I'm Sam Payne, your host, and it's such a pleasure for me to be with you today. We've got a great hour for you. You're going to hear stories from the great storyteller Len Cabral. He'll tell a story called The Snail with the Silver Shell from his terrific collection, Buzz Buzz Once There Was. You'll hear a performance of a story called Lee Chi Slays the Serpent, a story told for you by the wonderful Beth Horner. That's one of those stories about young women being sacrificed to a deadly monster until one brave young woman stands up and works to break the curse. You know the type of story I mean, and it's coming up on The Appleseed. You'll also hear a conversation with our friend Rod Gustafson, who's seen a film or two, and we'll talk about a favorite uh, with him a little later on in the hour. But to introduce us to the very first story that we're going to hear today, I'm pleased to be joined in the studio by Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers. Trent, it's great to have you with me. Hey, Sam. How about a groundhog tale? You know, there always there's a lot of them actually. <laughs> I was surprised. I'm always surprised at how many groundhog tales there are. Right, right. And tell us about this one by Megan Hicks. Um, so this is uh, it's called the Shoemaker and the Groundhog. Yeah. So it's not just the groundhogs in this story. Um, but you know, trying to kind of give you an idea of what it is about. Uh, I don't know if you've ever had an experience where you had these grand expectations and <laughs> and then when it came to the the moment of truth, they were kind of dashed. Never. That's never, ever happened. You're a lucky guy. <laughs> um, it's happened to me. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, as a kid, I think I remember, you know, seeing these commercials for Chuck E. Cheese's all the time. And I, I thought it was this awesome place. I'd never yeah. been there because for whatever reason. But, you know, I heard all these things and I saw them all the time. And I was like, man, I someday... I'm going to go to Chuck E. Cheese's and have a grand experience. But <laughs> when I got there, it just for whatever reason, it didn't meet my expectations. So often the case. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not to bag on anybody who actually who likes Chuck E. Cheese's, but <laughs> that was that was my personal experience. But in this story, it's kind of similar. This the shoemaker, he's poor, yeah. and you know he's like, oh, I'm a good little shoemaker. And all the fairy tales, the shoemakers get blessed. Right, yeah. And so he's just, he, he crosses his, his legs and he just waits for his blessings to arrive. Um, and the, the storyteller here is uh, Megan Hicks. And we had a conversation with Megan Hicks about where she tells a lot of groundhog stories. Okay. And we, we learned where they came from. She had, she describes it as a, 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 a habit of procrastination in sending Christmas greeting cards to mm -hmm. people. And she would usually not get around to it until about February. And so yeah, she would never find done herself. That before. Yeah, right. <laughs> she would she would find herself sending out Groundhog Day cards. Uh -huh. And uh, in sending out Groundhog Day cards, 
they kind of evolved into these stories. And now she performs as a professional storyteller a lot of these groundhog stories on recordings and on stage. And they're usually based, however loosely, on traditional fairy tales. This one, of course, based on the story of the shoemaker and the elves. Yep. But here it is, The Shoemaker and the Groundhogs by Megan Hicks here on The Appleseed. ago in a kingdom far away, there lived a shoemaker who, through no fault of his own, had fallen upon hard times. One day he said to his wife, Wife, I'm down to my last scrap of leather. There's just enough here for a weensy little pair of baby shoes. His wife said, How unfortunate. I'm just cooking up our last handful of beans. Well, I guess early retirement isn't going to be all bright lights and glitter now, is it? But in his heart, the shoemaker knew that he was the protagonist in a fairy tale. So he slept soundly, untroubled by worries of what the morrow might bring. Next morning, upon arising, he hurried to his workbench and found the bits of leather he had cut out the night before, sitting right where he had left them. He sat down, adjusted his bifocals, and got to work. From time to time, he scanned the corners of the room to see if he might detect the movement of little elves scuttling in the shadows. Nope, just cobwebs. Sighing, he bent once more to his task. At the stroke of noon, however, as his wife was serving up the last of their beans, there came a rapping at the door. Ah, he thought, this bodes well. He assumed his most casual air and opened the door to welcome this bearer of good tidings, this, this maker of magic, this enchanted meal ticket that comes to all good shoemakers who, through no fault of their own, hit hard times. "'Goodness gracious, what have we here?' he queried heartily. "'I'm Clive. I'm Lucy.' "'Well, that tells me who you are,' said the shoemaker, but... I want to know what you are, really. What, said Lucy. You never saw a groundhog? Yes, yes, of course, I know what groundhogs look like. But tell me, what were you before? Before what? Before the witch or the wizard or the ogre turned you into groundhogs. We've always been groundhogs. The shoemaker remained unconvinced. It was a good thing he had read a few fairy tales and felt familiar with the drill. Well, whatever you are, do come in. Make yourselves at home. Seriously. Mi casa es su casa. Seriously. Seriously, said Clive. Seriously. Well, that's awful generous. Um, all right, then. I'll just go grab the luggage. From behind the privet hedge, the groundhog retrieved two miniature Samsonite suitcases. The two groundhogs waddled in and extended their furry paws to the shoemaker's wife. Enchanté, she said. Husband, isn't this special? Just when we were feeling glum, here come two lovely groundhogs to cheer us up. 
Tell me, darlings, are you hungry? We have a nice pot of beans. Uh, thanks, I'm good right now, said Clive. Yeah, me too, said Lucy. But, but, but you've got to eat something, said the shoemaker. You have to eat at least half of the last of our food. Otherwise, the magic won't work. What magic? asked Lucy. Oh, come, come, quit being coy. I know why you're here. No, you don't, she said. Oh, indeed, I do, said the shoemaker. You are here because I have, through no fault of my own, fallen upon hard times. You are here to, by some beneficent magical means, bail me out of these dire straits. Whoa, said Clyde, get a grip. Actually, you want to know the real reason we're here? The real reason we're here is because... Our burrow got buried under the new Walgreens parking lot. Lucy said, We too have fallen upon hard times, through no fault of our own. Clive continued, Yeah, so that offer you made, mi casa es su casa, make yourselves at home, man, that is so sweet. I'm, I, I'm going all verklempt. The shoemaker began to realize that he had misjudged the situation. Totally. You really are groundhogs, then, he asked. What have we been telling you, said Lucy. What else could we be? Elves? Under an enchantment? That, that's sort of what I was expecting today. You know, nimble fingers, opposable thumbs, manual dexterity. At that very moment, there came another knock. This time, the shoemaker's wife answered the door and ushered in a pair of exactly the sort of elves the shoemaker had been expecting. Yo, mister, they said in unison. We're the Panacea Brothers. I'm Silver, and I'm Bullet. Got any work cut out for us? They wiggled their little fingers at him and gave him two tiny thumbs up. The shoemaker was speechless with delight. Elves and groundhogs apparently had already met. Yo, Lucy, Clive, what's up? Um, we have fallen upon hard times, said Clive. The burrow got paved over. Dude, that is harsh. What are you going to do? Well, as it happens, this good shoemaker has just invited Lucy and me to make ourselves at home right here. Um, um, I, um, um, the shoemaker spluttered. I seem to have not been apprised of all the details pertinent to this situation before extending the hypothetical offer of short-term sanctuary that has apparently been misconstrued and which, in light of current developments, is simply not a viable or sustainable state of affairs. The elves said, What? Oh, Clive said, I get it. You were just playing nice. You really did think we were magical creatures and we could make everything all right for you. Like some kind of fairy tale, said Lucy. How old are you, mister? Come on, Clive, let's go. Listen, said the shoemaker. I don't, I don't want to come across as a, a mean and uncharitable person. Well, that's the impression I've got so far, said Lucy. Now, see here, there's a simpleton down the street. Nice kid, doting mom. I'm sure she'd be open to the idea of a couple of cute furry pets. Pets? Come on, Clive, we're out of here.
At that moment, the shoemaker's wife stood up and said, Wait, nobody's going anywhere until you've toured the backyard. I think it might suit you. Heaven knows we're not doing anything with it. Come with me. Lucy and Clive followed her out to a small, sunny, neglected garden. I once had aspirations, she told them. Flowers, organic vegetables, just enough for the two of us, don't you know? But somehow time slipped away. Will you want to do it now? asked Clive. We'll be a rototillers. Get some worms going, maybe attract some bees. You got that dead tree they could live in. That would be lovely, she exclaimed. Tell me what you like to eat, and I'll plant a corner of the yard just for you. Lucy looked at Clive and said, I like the way this lady thinks. Come on, let's start cultivating this friendship. Meanwhile, inside the house, the Panacea brothers were making a hash of the shoemaker's last weensy little pair of baby shoes. No, no, said the shoemaker. The stitches must be small and perfect. You don't need nails for baby shoes. Put that hammer down. Careful with that all. You'll poke your eye out. Oh, 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 for heaven's sake, give it to me. I'll do it myself. Okay, they said. And they scampered down from the workbench out the door to the backyard. Yo, Clive, they hollered. We got fired. Then here, darlings, said the shoemaker's wife, take this spoon I just found in the dirt. Oh, and here's the fork that went with it. You can help us dig. The Panacea brothers weren't a whole lot of help, but they stayed busy and they didn't get in the way. Suddenly, the shoemaker's wife said, oh, Dear me, I quite forgot about lunch. You'll have to excuse me for a few minutes. Can I bring anyone some beans? Everyone said they were good. Thanks. She hurried indoors to find her husband bent over his workbench, putting the finishing touches on his final weensy little pair of baby shoes. Husband, I think they're the best you've ever made, she said. Are you ready to eat? Wife, what will befall us? We have no money, I have no leather, and after lunch we'll have no food. And to make matters worse... There is no magic. At that moment, a rich merchant entered the shop. I'm on my way to a baby shower. I need a gift. What you got? These, said the shoemaker dispiritedly, holding out the newly finished pair of weensy little baby shoes. Perfect, said the merchant. How much? Two duck, four ducats, interposed the shoemaker's wife. All I have is a five, said the merchant. Keep the change. And he hurried away. Well, husband, that'll buy leather for two more pair of shoes and groceries for a week. And then what, wife? He asked dejectedly, somewhat querulously, too, if you want to know the unvarnished truth. Well, you'll sell those shoes. I'll buy some more groceries. We'll make it through another couple of weeks. And before too long, we'll have flowers and honey and organic vegetables. Hand to mouth, said the shoemaker. We're living hand to mouth. I was hoping we'd live happily ever after. Well, husband, she said, if this were a fairy tale, we might have. 
<laughs> Megan Hicks with the Shoemaker and the Groundhogs, a spin on the old fairy tale of the Shoemaker and the Elves. Such a pleasure to hear that story and to hear it not only along with you, but along with Trent Horton, one of our assistant producers here in the studio. Trent, uh, that's quite a story. Yes, it is. <laughs> I think about... Uh, uh, the the thing that Megan Hicks does sometimes is fun. I mean, a lot of storytellers try this, and mm-hmm. of course, maybe you've tried it at home to take a traditional fairy tale about which everybody knows the details, you know, and then mix it up and a little mix bit. it up. Yeah, yep. yeah, fracture it, right? And Megan's groundhog stories are all filled with you know this kind of real world sensibility, this kind of down to earth non fairy tale. Looking at things as they are, even yeah. though even though you're dealing with groundhogs, right? Yep. <laughs> Talking once, no less. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a pleasure to hear this tale, the ground, the shoemaker and the groundhogs, told by Megan Hicks. There's a lot more coming up on the Appleseed. Trent, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. Stick around. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to the Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to the Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's so great to have you with me on this hour of the Appleseed. A moment ago, Megan Hicks with The Shoemaker and the Groundhogs, just one of many fairy tales that she has fractured by making them about groundhogs. A pleasure to hear from Megan Hicks. Coming up, stories from Len Cabral and Beth Horner. But first, since we know that the sharing of memories can often be a spark that ignites a memory or a story for you that you can share around the kitchen table or the living room with the people that you love. We like to share memories here on the show. Here's one of mine about reading about elephants. It's today's entry in the Radio Family Journal. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. In 2005, I read an article that kind of changed my life. It wasn't a self-help article or an article about a new diet or a way to get rich quick. It wasn't anything like that. It was an article about moving elephants in Kenya. In Kenya, in 2005, they were moving elephants. I figure that must be about the hardest thing there is, moving an elephant. Moving them has to be done, of course, whole. You can't do it a bite at a time the way you'd eat an elephant. You know, the old adage about how you eat an elephant a bite at a time. Weird adage. Anyway, who's going to tell an elephant to get in the truck if he doesn't want to go? Well, in 2005... They were moving hundreds of elephants to a distance of about 400 miles away from where they then lived to keep them from interacting dangerously with the humans of a place called Shimba Hills. One might think that the humans, for their size, might be easier to move than the elephants, but moving the elephants was no cattle drive. Each elephant had to be sedated, hoisted as gently as a ten-ton sleeping baby can be hoisted onto a big truck using an enormous winch and taken on a long, sleepy drive to its new home, where it and its neighbors would be protected from poachers by watchful, gun-toting wardens. And the whole project had been earmarked, and these are elephant-sized ears, to cost $3.2 million dollars. Along with the article I read, 
There were pictures of the first bull elephant being prepared for transport, sleeping soundly under sedation, its giant legs poking almost comically into the air, tended by a small army of vigilant and sober veterinarians and rangers and engineers. There were no pictures of the enormous bull elephant on the truck or in transit to its new home, and there are no pictures because the elephant never made the trip. I mean, the elephant was fine, but in the end proved to be too much elephant for the poor truck. Or, more precisely, it was too much elephant for the poor winch connected to the truck. The winch that was to hoist the elephant up onto the truck. The winch, out of sheer exhaustion, broke, swamping the whole elephant-moving operation. The whole thing postponed indefinitely. $3.2 million in the bank, hundreds of sedation darts at the ready, distant jungles of elephant real estate all prepped and ready, including, at no extra charge to the elephants, an elaborate poacher repellent system, postponed indefinitely, all of it, for want of a winch equal to the task. Well, you know what they say about the best laid plans of mice and men, I guess. And it's not mine to armchair quarterback something like that, but it got me thinking. The elaborate life plans of any of us, I suppose, are just as fragile as that elephant operation. And by small and simple things are sometimes thwarted the most ambitious of those life plans. I know a guy who, if you ask him how he's doing, replies... Fantastic, but I'm improving, which is a fun way to answer that question. I'm a little more cautious myself. People who have asked me how I'm doing have known me to answer, good so far, but anything could happen. I mean, I say it as a joke, and certainly I don't mean to be cynical. I don't feel like I am cynical, really, but for heaven's sake, these elephants have had me thinking for years. And for me, I guess, it's a point for a life formula that certainly includes savoring every minute that things are going well and certainly includes having a backup plan somewhere and certainly includes care to check all the parts carefully as the plan progresses. But it might also include a certain reverence for the multitude of things that are beyond our control altogether for how easily the universe can, without so much as waking the elephant up, send all our careful preparations out the window. In the end, you never know when the winch might break, bring the whole elephantine operation down, and leave you with a whole new adventure you may never have expected. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne, a tiny little story for you and your family, right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal here on The Appleseed. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. And if that happens for you, write your story down, write your memory down, and send it to us at theappleseed at byu.edu. We'd love to hear from you. And some of our favorite stories come from listeners just like you. There's a lot coming up on The Appleseed. 
Appleseed. You're going to hear from Len Cabral with a story called The Snail with the Silver Shell. And we'll hear that story from Beth Horner. Lee Chi slays the serpent about a time when young women are sacrificed to a bloodthirsty monster until one young woman stands up and bravely works to break the curse. That's all coming up. But first, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the books that we read, the meals that we share, the songs that we love, and the films that we choose to see. And talking about some of those ways in which great stories come into our lives is something that we love to do with friends. I'm thrilled to be joined in the studio by a member of our radio family, Rod Gustafson. Rod, it's great to have you with me. Oh, it's always good to be here with you, Sam. Now, I gotta tell you, Rod and his wife, wife have for many, many years made a profession of reviewing films for families. And of course, down at the bottom of that is just a love of all these great films <laughs> and certainly a wealth of experiences that comes with watching them. Right? Yeah, a, a love for about 5% of those 5,000 <laughs> movies we watched. Yes. <laughs> right. It's like panning for gold. Let but me tell I'll you. tell you, the film that we're going to talk about today is a classic. Well, this one is a classic. And, and because I reviewed movies for parents and families for so long, yeah. I always have to put this little uh, disclaimer in front of it. American Graffiti does have some content in it that you probably should preview before you share it with your teens sure, and yeah. probably not share it with your children. But this really is a landmark movie. Many people know that this is one of George Lucas's very first films. It right. was filmed on a teeny-weeny little budget. George grew up in a in a city called Modesto, California. Mm -hmm. Actually, have in-laws from there now, which is amazing <laughs> to me. But for me... Um, again, and I know our listeners have heard me say this so many times, but I grew up in a little pokey town in the Canadian prairies. <laughs> I used to dream of California. My parents would go to California for holidays and anything to do with California just had me. So when American Graffiti came out, I was about, mm, I don't know, about 13 years old, I think. And I went to see it. And then I went back again and went back again. And of course, no no VHS tapes or anything. Sure, this yeah. is even before that. No, had those, to pay those to go days see it. when yes. seeing a movie was such a remarkable experience yeah, at it all. Was. Yeah, right. in the Monarch Theater in yeah. Medicine Hat. And, and knowing just, that you had to hang on to that experience because uh -huh, uh -huh. you were never going to get it again. And it just got better and better in your brain as the years <laughs> went by. Anyway, I, in this city of Medicine Hat, Alberta, we used to spend a lot of time, people would cruise around. It was one of the hottest cities in Canada, which means it got above freezing in July. <laughs> Actually, a little more than that. And so when I was 16, after I saw American Graffiti, I just wanted to go cruising. And th and that's what I did. My, my high school grades just plummeted because I was driving around the block. But the most important part of American Graffiti for me, and then go ahead, give spoiler if you haven't seen it, but there's this mysterious disc jockey that one of the main characters, Kurt, played by a young Richard Dreyfus, mm. he wants to find out who Wolfman Jack is. And of course, Wolfman Jack is and was, I should say, a real radio personality. Sure, iconic. And so towards the end of the movie, he finally finds the disc jockey he's been listening to in this little dumpy radio station out in the desert. And there's this great scene at the end of the movie and that is the scene 
that just burned into my brain and caused me about once a month after school to walk down to the local radio station, talk to the program director and say, do you have any openings? And this wonderful man, Pat O'Connor was his name. He would take me into a studio and rip off a piece of wire copy and put it down for me and say, here you go, load up a little piece of reel-to-reel tape and let me do my thing. And then he'd say, Thanks so much, Rod. I'll get in touch with you. And I did this probably throughout, oh, probably about seven or eight times. And then one day, Pat phoned me at home, of course, no cell phones, and said, Rod, I was talking to my friend who manages the television station. You should go see him. Mm. And, And lo and behold, I got a wonderful job Not with my voice, but pushing buttons. And that's when I got into broadcasting. I was 15 years old and I've never looked back. But it was just American Graffiti and seeing Wolfman Jack. And it wasn't even Wolfman Jack as much as just the whole, you get to be on the radio, you get to talk to people, you get to play records and everything else. And that just bit me. I I was sold. So The people that you hear, you know, I, I think about the people that I heard on the radio when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And these were kids who, I mean, these were guys who just, you know, lived in the town yep. over. Oh, yeah. mean, they're, just, yeah. they're just regular folks. Mm-hmm. But in your mind, they are superstars. Oh, yeah. And that, I mean, obviously Wolfman Jack was a superstar. But within the context of yeah. the story of American Graffiti, he's the local DJ. Yeah. And I yeah. just love the scene. Let's give it away a little bit more where Richard Dreyfus finally finds him. And he's just this kind a dude wearing a wearing a tacky wine shirt sure. like I have on right now. <laughs> he's eating popsicles because the air conditioner broke down. Yeah. And, you know, that's a lot like the television station, radio stations where I grew up sure. in this little town yeah. where they were, you know, they were built back in the earliest days of broadcasting and they're just barely strung together. But when you listen to it, it's just a magical world, the magical world of broadcasting. And that was seeing Wolfman Jack in American Graffiti was where really that that connection was made for me. And here you are and in here a broadcasting career. Do you remember, I'm going to put you on the spot, do you remember the first time we met? When you and I met? Yes. I, it was here. It was here. And I managed somehow to get an audition for the BYU Radio Morning Show. And so they said, go ahead, Rod, give it a try. And on comes Sam Payne, the storyteller. And that's the first time I met you. (laughs) See, even back then, and that's only about eight years ago, Sam, I was still trying to get my voice on the air. So thank you for letting me do this today. Oh, for heaven's (laughs) sakes. You know, I'm thinking about when I was a teenager and just the magical experience it was, the brush with celebrity and fame and Mm -hmm. being on the airwaves Mm -hmm. that it was, simply to call into a radio station and make a request for a song. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was somehow a little connection between a regular person and the big world of broadcast. Yeah, I used to to do that. I would say, you know, like, can you play this Olivia (laughs) Newton-John song? Because I'm in love with Olivia (laughs) Newton-John. Well, American Graffiti is where it all started for Rod Gustafson. And what a pleasure to chat with you about it. Thanks, Rod. You're welcome, Sam.
Great stories come into our lives in so many ways. Such a pleasure to chat with our friend Rod Gustafson about a memorable film. We'll be sure to have him back. There's a lot coming up on The Appleseed. Up next, you're going to hear from Len Cabral from a a collection of stories called Buzz Buzz Once There Was. He'll tell us a, a story called The Snail with the Silver Shell. You won't want to miss it. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's such a pleasure for me to be with you on this hour of The Appleseed. A moment ago, a conversation with our friend Rod Gustafson about a memorable film. And at the top of the hour, you heard The Shoemaker and the Groundhogs, a fractured fairy tale from Megan Hicks. Now, up next, we've got a story from Len Cabral. It's a story called The Snail with the Silver Shell. And in this story, a boy was always made fun of for being boring. That is, until he happened upon a snail with a silver shell. The snail had some amazing stories to tell, at least a hundred of them. And uh, here's the story. The Snail with the Silver Shell, told for you by Len Cabral, here on The Appleseed. Buzz, buzz, once there was a little boy, and his name was John. John couldn't do anything right. Whenever John played baseball, he always made the first out. Whenever John played tag, he was always it. Whenever John played hide-and-seek, he was always the first one found. John couldn't do anything right. Well, it was summertime, you see. School had just closed. It was the beginning of summer vacation. And John was sitting on his porch with his friends. They were sitting on the steps and on the railings and on the lawn. And you know what the boys and girls say. As soon as school closes, the first thing they say, they say, There's nothing to do. It's boring. There's nothing to do. And John, he was kind of bored, you know. He didn't want to play baseball. He'd make the first out. Or tag, he'd be it. Hide and seek, he'd be found. So John thought he'd run away from home. So John, he ran across the street and down the street into a field. And then John thought he'd rest for a little while and run further away later. So John sat down on the grass and he leaned up against a tree. And that summer sun was shining on John's face and it lulled John to sleep. And as John was sleeping, a little snail with a silver shell crawled across the grass. And that snail with the silver shell crawled up John's arm and over John's shoulder. And that snail with the silver shell crawled up to John's neck. And that snail with the silver shell crawled up to John's ear. And that snail with the silver shell said, John, I know you, John. You're a good boy. You just can't do anything right. But John, I'm going to tell you 100 stories that no one else has ever heard, John. And John, 
You can share those stories with your friends. And that snail with the silver shell told John 100 stories that no one else had ever heard. And as John was laying in that field, a bumblebee flew right by John's ear and went, Buzz, buzz, once there was. And John opened his eyes just in time to hear his mother's voice come floating by. John, John. It was supper time. John forgot all about running away from home. John went back home. He had a nice big supper. And after supper, John sat on the steps and his friends came over and they sat on the railings and on the porch and on the lawn. And you know what they say in the summertime. There's nothing to do. It's boring. There's nothing to do. And John said, I, I could tell you a story. What, John? I said, I, I, I could tell you a story. Hey, John's going to tell us a story. Go ahead, John. We're listening. <laughs> Go ahead, John. And John told them a story, and they said, Wow, John, that, that was really good. Do you know another one? And John told them another story, and they said, John, that was awesome. Do you know any more? John, that was far out. Do you know any more? And John told story after story after story. And it started getting late and the sun went down and the moon came out and the stars came out and their parents came out looking for them. And they sat down and listened to John tell stories too until the mosquitoes came out. Then they all went home. But the next morning, all John's friends came back. And John told stories all that day and the following day and the day after that. And all that week and the following week, John told story after story after story. And then one day, John decided to tell a story. When a little girl raised her hand, she said, Excuse me, John, but you already told us that story. Don't you know any others? John said, No, I, I don't know any other stories. I, I told you all the stories that I know. I don't know any other stories. You don't know any other stories? John is boring, John is boring. John felt terrible. John thought he'd run away from home, go find that snail with the silver shell. So John, he ran down the street into that field. He was looking everywhere for that snail. He looked in the bushes, he looked under logs. Oh, he looked up in the trees. He was looking everywhere. And then John thought, what he'd do is rest for a little while and see if he could find that snail later. So Johnny sat down on the ground and leaned up against a tree. And that summer sun was shining on John's face. He got a little tired, and, and he put his hand down on the ground, and it landed on a flat rock. And John thought, maybe the snail with the silver shell lives under this rock. So John picked up that rock, and right there stood a witch about the size of a gummy bear. She looked up at John and said, What do you want, John? Can't you see I'm teaching magic tricks to all the worms? I'm teaching to dig holes in the ground to come up with little pebbles. What do you want, John? I'm sorry, but do you know where the snail with the silver shell lives? John, you'll never find that snail. He lives way over there. Thank you. Close the door. Okay. Yee. And John put the rock back down on the ground and John ran across the field. 
until he found himself in a field full of mushrooms. They were tall mushrooms. They were taller than John. And then he saw a little old man sitting on a tree stump. The little old man had a long gray beard, had on Oshkosh jeans and Reeboks. Excuse me, sir, but do you know where the snail with the silver shell lives? The snail with the silver shell? I know that snail, young man. He told me 100 stories, but I didn't have anybody to share those stories with. And they all turned into mushrooms. <laughs> I'm sorry about that, but do you know where he lives? Who? <laughs> the snail with the silver shell. John, you might as well give up. You'll never find that snail. That snail lives way over there. Thank you. And John ran through that field full of mushrooms until he found himself in a forest. And he started to walk through that forest when he heard something climbing a tree. And he looked up, and there was a great big brown bear climbing the tree. And John said, excuse me, Mr. Bear, do you know where the snail with the silver shell lives? And the bear looked down at John and said, John, how can you ask me a question like that now? Can't you see I'm busy climbing this tree? I'm trying to get the moon out the sky, John. It's always messing with my sleep at night. What did you ask me? The snail with the silver shell. Do you know where he lives? John, you might as well give up. You'll never find that snail. That snail lives way over there. Thank you. And John ran through that forest until he came to a beach. And the waves were coming in and splashing on the sand and going back out and splashing and going back out. And John looked and he, he saw on the surface of the water, he, he saw a whale. And on the whale's back, he saw a dozen mermaids. And they had long hair. And some had black hair. And some had red hair. And some had brown hair. And some had blonde hair. And they were braiding each other's hair. And John said, excuse me, mermaids, do you know where the snail with the silver shell lives? And the mermaids looked at John and said, John, before you find the snail with the silver shell, you have to do something very good. What is it? I'll do anything. We can't tell you. And the mermaids dove into the water and they started to swim away. And the whale dove up in the air and came down with his mighty tail. Splash! Got John soaking wet. Well, John, he walked along that sandy beach until he came to a field. It was a hilly field, a long, long, open, hilly field. And he saw a little white spot way across the field, about the size of a golf ball. Well, Johnny ran across that field, and when he got there, it wasn't a golf ball at all. It was a furry little bunny. Hi, bunny, said John. Hoo, hoo, you startled me, said the bunny. You startled me. I'm lost, Johnny. I'm lost. I've really done it to myself this time. I'll never find my way home, Johnny. I'm really lost now. Well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Where, where do you live? Maybe I can help you find your way home. You'll never be able to help me find my way home, John. You don't know where I live. I live in a field full of mushrooms, John. It's on the other side of a forest. You're going to walk by a beach and across a field. You'll never know where I live, John. <laughs> Come on. I know where you live. I'll bring you there. And John scooped up that bunny and cradled it in his arms. And John walked back across that field. And he walked along the beach. He looked out in the water and the whale was back on the surface of the water and the mermaids on the whale's back braiding each other's hair, sort of winking at John. 
And then John, he, he walked into that forest and the bear was still climbing the tree, trying to get the moon out the sky because it messed with his sleep at night. And then he walked into that field full of mushrooms. And he saw that little old man sitting on a tree stump with a long gray beard, had on Oshkosh jeans and Reeboks. And right next to the tree was a mother bunny. And John said, excuse me, Miss Bunny, is this your baby? <gasps> indeed it is, Johnny, indeed it is, whoopee! And the mother bunny ran over and squeezed that little baby. Ooh, 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 ooh. Excuse me, mother bunny, but do you know where the snail with the silver shell lives? Oh yes, John. You go right down that path over there, John. You, you, you step over a log, you turn around three times, you take three steps to your left, three steps to your right, turn around again, and you'll be facing a wall, John. John, when you face that wall, say, buzz, buzz, once there was. And John, that wall will open up. And there'll be a long corridor. You walk down that corridor, John. The snail lives down there. But John, be very careful, because down there lives a fire-breathing dragon. Would you like a salad? But John was already gone. He, he went down the path. He stepped over a log. He turned around three times. He took three steps to his left. Three steps to his right. Turned around once again. He was facing a wall, and he said, Buzz, buzz. Once there was, and that wall started to open up, and there was a long corridor, and John started to walk down that corridor, trying to be as quiet as possible, when all of a sudden, out of nowhere, came a fire. Breathing dragon. Ah, John, I'm gonna eat you up, John. Ah. Whoa, 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 don't eat me up. I'm looking for the snail with the silver shell. He told me a hundred stories. I don't know anymore. My friends think I'm boring. I need some more stories. I know that snail, John. He told me a hundred stories too, but he won't tell me anymore, John. I'm gonna eat him up too, but first, I'm gonna eat you up. Would you eat me if I told you 50 stories? Definitely. Would you eat me if I told you 75 stories? Yes. Would you eat me if I told you 100 stories? Maybe. Maybe not. And John told that fire-breathing dragon, one hundred stories. Hey, John, you're all right. I was only fooling about that eating up bot. <laughs> the snail's right around the corner there. Go ahead. And John walked around the corner, and there was a snail. And John said, Oh, snail, I'm so glad I found you. Listen, I told your stories to my friends. They really liked them a lot. But now I don't know any more stories, and they think I'm boring. Can you tell me some more stories? Huh? And the snail looked at John and said, John, I told you all the stories that I know. I, I don't know any more stories, John. John, you, you have to make up your own. My own? Yes, John, your own. <laughs> my own, my own, my own. Just then, a bumblebee flew through the air over to John's ear and said, 
Buzz, buzz, once there was a little boy whose name was John. And John opened his eyes just in time to hear his mother's voice come floating by. John, John! It was supper time. John's stomach was grumbling. John looked around. He hadn't been anywhere. John was dreaming. And John got up and he ran all the way home and he had a nice big supper. And after supper, he sat on the porch and his friends came over and they sat on the steps and on the banister and on the lawn. And they were all sitting around. And you know what they say in the summertime. There's nothing to do. It's boring. There's nothing to do. And he looked at John and said, Hey, John, do you know any stories? And John said, No, I, I don't know any stories. I, I told you all the stories that I know. I, I don't know any more stories. You don't know any more stories? <laughs> John is boring. John is boring. Just then, a bumblebee flew through the air over to John's ear and said, Buzz, buzz, once there was a little boy whose name was John. And John said, hey, wait, wait, I do know a story. Hey, everybody, John knows a story. Go ahead, Johnny, we're with you. Go, Johnny, go, Johnny. And Johnny said, well, once there was a witch about the size of a gummy bear. She taught magic tricks to all the worms, how to dig holes in the ground and come up with little pebbles. Then he told a story about a man in a field full of mushrooms and how those mushrooms used to be stories, but the man didn't share them with anyone and they all turned into mushrooms. And then he told a story about a bear climbing a tree, trying to get the moon out the sky because it messed with his sleep at night. And then he told a story about a dozen mermaids on the back of a whale and how they braided each other's hair. And then he told a story about a lost bunny and how happy the mother bunny was to have her baby back home. And then he told a story about a cave. And he told a story about a fire breathing. Dragon. And whenever John told stories after story and after story, and whenever John ever almost ran out of stories, it never failed. A bumblebee would float through the air over to John's ear and say, Buzz, buzz, once there was The Snail with the Silver Shell, a story told for you by Len Cabral and based on an old Sicilian folk tale. And up next, we've got a story called Lee Chi Slays the Serpent. This is told by the wonderful storyteller Beth Horner. And in the world of this story, sons are valued, but daughters are not. And it's a world in which young women are being sacrificed to a bloodthirsty monster until one brave young woman stands up to break the curse. This is Li Chi Slays the Serpent, told for you by Beth Horner, right here on The Appleseed. In Fukjin, in the ancient state of Yue, there stands the young mountain range with peaks that sometimes reach a height of many miles. To the northwest, there's a cleft in these mountains 
and it is said that this cleft was once inhabited by a giant serpent, seventy or eighty feet long and wider than the span of ten hands. It is said that this serpent kept the local people in a state of constant terror. It had already killed many commandants from the capital city and many magistrates and officials of nearby towns. Offerings of oxen and sheep did not appease this monster. But finally, by entering men's dreams and making its wishes known through mediums, it demanded young girls of twelve or thirteen to feast upon. Helpless, the officials selected daughters of bondsmaids and criminals and kept them until the appointed date. Then, on the eighth day of the eighth month of each year, they delivered a girl through the mountains to the mouth of the serpent's cave, and the serpent would come out and swallow its victim. This continued for nine years until nine young girls had been devoured. Now in the tenth year, the officials had again begun to search for a girl to hold in readiness. There was a man of Jang Lo County named Li Tan, and he had raised six daughters but no sons. His youngest daughter, Li Ji, responded to this search for a victim by volunteering. Her parents refused to allow it, but she said to them, Honorable parents, you have no one to depend upon, for having brought forth six daughters and not a single son, it is as if you were childless. I am of no use to you. I will not be able to help you in your old age. I only waste your good food and clothing. Please, if I cannot help you with my life, allow me to help you with my death. What could be the harm in selling me to gain some money for yourselves? But her father and mother loved her too much to consent. So Li Ji went in secret. Li Ji sought out the officials of the district and told them of her decision, and she asked for a sharp sword and a snake-hunting dog. The officials, feeling it a decision wisely made, granted her requests. On the eighth day of the eighth month of the tenth year, Li Ji was carried through the mountains and left at the mouth of the serpent's cave, alone to be eaten. Li Ji sat, holding the dog and clutching the sword. And although the serpent did not appear, she could hear it stirring within. Hour upon hour she waited through the night, until finally, finally, at last, at dawn, the serpent appeared, its vast body slithering out of the mouth of the cave, its head as large as a rice barrel, and its eyes like mirrors two feet across. Li Chi opened her cloak, and she drew from beneath several pecks of rice balls moistened with malt sugar. She placed them before the serpent. 
Smelling the fragrance of the malt sugar, the serpent stopped and opened its vast mouth to eat them. And when it did, Li Ji released the snake-hunting dog, which leapt onto the serpent's back and bit hard into the serpent's scaling flesh. Then Li Ji herself came up from behind and scored the serpent several deep cuts. Her strokes were so swift and so strong that the serpent leapt into the open and died. Li Ji turned and walked into the serpent's cave. There, she recovered the skulls of the nine young victims. She sighed as she carried them out, saying, How pitiful! For your timidity, you were devoured. Slowly, she made her way homeward through the mountains. From that time forth, the district was free of monsters. Ballads to this day celebrate the great deed of Lee G. Great storyteller Beth Horner with an ancient tale called Leechy Slays the Serpent. And a uh, pleasure to bring that story to you today. We invite you to join us online uh, at byuradio.org slash Appleseed for more. And, of course, uh, Trent Horton wrote this hour. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. Our producer, Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. What a pleasure to be with you. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time.